Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR, Division of Forestry, and your hosts for today's show. I wonder where they are. I hate to admit it, but I'm usually the late one. Yes, you are, Brad. You are usually late. (laughs) Jennifer and Armin said that they would meet us at these coordinates, but maybe I messed up. I'm not sure. We are on the Black River State Forest, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're on the Black River. Hey, check it out. Here's some sweet fern. You ever try making tea out of sweet fern? No, I haven't tried that, Brad. And past experience tells me that I shouldn't eat things that you hand me in the field. Well, you have to be a little more adventurous, my friend. You're a little repressed in that way. You've got to let, let the world come <laughs> let, to you, Greg. L- let loose. Okay, it's, I'll think let about it. flow over I'll you, my friend. I'll think about that. I'll All think right. about that. Well, I don't see me either, but let's keep walking. And, and just so folks know, uh, today we're out on the Wisconsin's Black River State Forest, hoping to meet up with Jennifer Boyce, Wisconsin DNR forester for the Black River State Forest, and Armin Bartz, the Wisconsin DNR regional ecologist for this area. Uh, Jennifer and Armin have been doing some great work here, and we're going to get a chance to take a look at some of that shortly. And they've been managing and restoring jack pine barrens, and so hopefully we'll get to see quite a bit of that today. Yes, and before we go look for them some more, I would just like to say that today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by SAF, which, by the way, helped us purchase this really cool field recording equipment. So I hope that we're operating it correctly. Yes. We'll find out when we look at the recordings. It's it's taking us in new directions yes. with Silvacast. But thank you, SAF. So let's go find those guys. Jennifer Armand, I'm glad we found you. Welcome to Silvacast. Hey. Hey, thanks. Hi, Brad. Hey, good to see you guys. (laughs) Here we are out on the Black River State Forest. And uh, Jennifer Armand, we've been working with you for a number of years, but just for the Silvacast audience, tell us a little bit about your role here on the Black River and what do you do? Okay, so my name is Jennifer Boyce, and I'm happily one of two foresters on the Black River State Forest now. For quite some time, I've been the only one, and now we finally have a second position doing some work here, too. Um, This property is about 70,000 acres, just a little under, and uh, I do all all aspects of forestry on it. So we're doing, you know, timber sales, Mm -hmm. forestry recon, all the forestry planning, working with a lot of contractors, doing invasive species control and, you know, the whole gamut. So that's, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And how many years have you been here? I've been on the black for 14 years. Okay. And I was hired way back in the good old days with Brad. you guys were hired together, right? Yeah, that's right. 2000. Best best group of DNR foresters ever hired, 2002. (laughs) And I'm always curious, so how did you get into forestry? Uh, It was kind of a random sort of thing. I was always kind of a science nerd, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I remember looking at the the college... little sheets that they had that explained each of the different things and going like, well, I don't know, maybe something in the earth sciences and just uh, as kind of a 
laziness. I didn't want to do the wildlife because you had to do statistics and like extra math. <laughs> so kind of out of laziness, I defaulted to forestry, but I, I've been super happy that I made that choice. It was probably, you know, yeah. meant to be. Yep. Meant to be because you're a good forester. Well, thanks. Yeah. Man. Well, no, it's true. Actually, you won the DNR Forester of the Year a couple of years ago, didn't you? Yeah, back in 2014, I yeah. think. But that was well after yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Something like that. So, so, and Harmon, welcome. Welcome. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, well, I'm the regional ecologist for this part of the state for Wisconsin DNR's Natural Heritage Conservation Program. Um, how did I come to this position? I largely grew up hunting and fishing and spending a lot of time in the woods. I thought I wanted to become a wildlife biologist, but then I learned that they really focus on deer, and it's kind of a tough position to be in as far as things like that. And I essentially learned that there's all these cool critters and habitats out there that really need help. And I didn't think really that the deer and turkey need as much help. So I found my role with DNR's Natural Heritage Conservation Program and working with rare species, rare habitats, bringing that information to the table for planning purposes. So do a lot of management, uh, a lot of consulting on integrating rare species habitat and management into other programs and things like that. And I know you guys both have been working a number of years together on different projects here on the Black River State Forest. And I think Brad and I were talking about this. I think you guys really epitomize um, ecologists and foresters working together for a common goal. And I'm just wondering kind of how that, how you guys got into that particular um, just sort of collaborative effort and how that's gone. And do you have any advice for other foresters and ecologists out there? Well, I would say that we were kind of just thrown into the situation (laughs) uh, during the master, beginning of the master planning process, maybe back in about 2007 or so. Um, things weren't always like they are now with our relationship and stuff like that working together. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of dickering back and forth and we didn't always agree on things and stuff like that, but it was really having mutual respect for one another, for each other's programs and respecting the process, the master planning process. And we came together and talked about what we're going to do on various parts of the forest. And again, we didn't always agree, but we got a solid master plan together. And ever since that plan has been together, it's been just working on how to, from my standpoint, how do we integrate rare species habitat management and rare species management into various aspects of the timber harvesting and things that go on on the state forest. And Jennifer, thoughts yourself on that? Um, yeah. I mean, we were all pretty new when we started that master plan process back in 07. And so we were going under all of the conceptions of our predecessors, too. And after we kind of like did the hard work of slogging through that master plan and really setting all the goals for the property, setting all of these special areas like this jack pine habitat area that we're in today. After you get through that hard work, then it's pretty easy to do what you're supposed to do as a forestry manager, right? So you're supposed to manage the forest for the goal of the property and based on the site conditions. So 
you leave your personal preferences out of it, right? You're supposed to be managing it according to your master plan. And if you get a chance and you can spend time together, Armand and I have been working in the field. I bring him out to mark with me sometimes. Um, I ask his help, you know, to look for these rare plants that come up on the NHI reviews that I don't know, you know, how to find them. And we've had lots more luck, you know, getting to know each other that way. And he's like super enthusiastic guy. You're always going to learn something if you spend a day in the field with Armand. I recommend it to all of our foresters that come into the area. If you have a chance to go out with the ecologist, take it. You know, it's really an awesome, an awesome chance to go out and learn a lot more about what's going on on your property than you learned in school for, for forestry. Yeah. yeah, and get kind of involved in a field activity together so you can kind of see what each other's roles are. I think that's really important. Yeah, and this isn't the norm. I mean, you guys make it sound easy, right? Like it just flows out of it and life is grand, but this isn't the way it works every place, right? Where foresters and ecologists might not see eye to eye and maybe they're working in different, you guys have like a really nice disturbance dependent system here. So if there were other disturbances or lack of disturbance, it might impact it. But is there advice you could give to other people who might be thinking about, okay, I want to start a relationship or I want to start a working thing with some other people. What would you kind of, what advice would you give? I would say that for myself, this is a state forest. Um, so I understand there's a lot of timber harvesting taking place. So for me, it was a matter of, I'm not a professional forester, but I need to know what timber harvesting methods are done, what the strategies are, how do we regenerate trees, largely to utilize a lot of that information to help manage for rare species and rare natural communities. So, you know, I needed to reach out to Jennifer and, hey, well, what are you planning on doing here? And how can we tweak that sale to really find that win-win of, you know, getting some economic return off of the forest, you know, some forest products, and at the same time managing for rare species. So that was sort of my was, you know, you you need to learn about what those techniques are. So so you had to learn learn the silviculture essentially. Absolutely. Part of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. At least make an attempt and at least learn it enough to work together and, you know, stuff yep. like that. So Yeah. Yeah, and I always think it's a little I, I find it fun, you know, so if if we're working on, I don't know, 10 or 15% of our property might be in these special management areas. The other 85% is kind of like handbook silviculture, right? You go to the handbook if you don't know what to do. This is a chance to be a little more creative, to manage for different uh, goals and objectives, and you're going to set up some sales that are going to be totally different than what you might do somewhere else, and it just makes it a lot more interesting for your job. Yeah, that creativity rather than following some script and the situation at the black doesn't always lend itself to following a script of what's in the silvicultural handbook and that sort of thing. Well, and that kind of brings us to what we're talking about here today and why we're out on this site. So this is our first recording out in the field. So that's pretty cool. Uh, So this is a podcast. People obviously can't see this. Look at that, people. <laughs> a pink elephant. I've never seen one of those. That's yeah. a Baron's elephant, isn't by that, the way. That's right. <laughs> that's down on the interstate, isn't uh, it? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. right. It is. Um, so just uh, tell us a little bit about this site that we're out here today at. What part of the forest is it? What What are we trying to accomplish here? Okay. So yeah, right now we're in kind of the northwest part of what is our jack pine habitat management area. So that's like a, the subgroup of our master plan, you know, land designations. Um, 
in our jack pine habitat area is a little, it's around 2,400 acres right now out of, you know, our whole property. We've got about 12,000 acres of jack pine total here. And in this area, we've specifically kind of set it up to manage it more aimed at jack pine, maintaining jack pine on these sites as our higher priority. And does it have a specific barrens type of objective in there um, in terms of the vegetation that you're trying to go for here? Yeah, absolutely, Greg. I mean, this is the high dry jack pine on the property mm-hmm. itself, and there's really good barrens opportunities. That's a, a rare natural community type for the listeners that aren't aware. But yeah, that was rolled right into the master plan as well, that while we're doing timber sales, uh, regenerating trees, we also want to try to manage in ways that are going to promote and benefit the rare habitat that is the jack pine barrens and all the rare species associated with with the barrens. And maybe for our listeners who aren't in this area or aren't familiar with it, so uh, what are jack pine barrens? Jack pine barrens is largely a prairie, you could say, a sand prairie, so a lot of prairie vegetation in the understory with jack pine in an overstory. So it could range from anything from almost completely open with just a few scattered jack pines to a fairly dense canopy of jack pine. But again, the key is that prairie understory with some heath thrown in. That's what separates it from an actual prairie is that we have blueberries and bearberries and those sorts of things in it. So most people probably understand prairie is pretty rare. Well, the Barrens essentially itself is pretty rare. And we had millions of acres in Wisconsin now down to you know, a dozen thousand acres or something like that. So we really do want to try to focus and maintain what we do have. Yeah. And from an ecological standpoint, is it those rare species that you're really trying to preserve and focus on? It really is. And I think a lot of people are familiar with the Carner blue butterfly as sort of a flagship barren species, but there's a whole host of other rare species from Kirtland's warbler that are you know, intricately tied to jack pine, to um, other rare butterflies, too. I mean, there's several other rare butterflies associated with wild lupin, the host plant for the Carner Blue. But really, it's the inverts associated, um, the rare birds, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and elk, even, now are starting <laughs> yeah, to like yeah. them as well in this part of the state. Some of us got to see an elk, but others did not today yeah cool cool not that i'm bitter about that but yeah (laughs) so you mentioned that we used to have a lot more barrens now it's been reduced what what's behind that um largely fire suppression um tied with just succession of everything you know i mean the woods are growing up after the great cutover and everything burned during the great cutover after the great cutover and then the forest just started growing up and then with lack of fire on the landscape, just trees and oak and brush and all those sorts of things grew up. So, you know, that only leaves the driest, harshest spots left that aren't full of lots of this brush and trees and that sort of thing. Although that's maybe questionable in some places here, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. lack of fire and that and the disturbance largely. And, and that kind of is a theme. We've we talked about that in previous episodes with oak, with Dan mm-hmm. Bay and others about... Yeah the importance of natural disturbance and trying to model that and some of the stuff we're doing. So uh, do you guys use much fire here as part of your management? We have started to use some prescribed fire right down the road. We had about about a 20 acre prescribed burn maybe six, seven years ago. We've been doing a few at, we had one at Sand Pillow not too many years ago. So we're beginning to use fire. 
Um, you know, we're hoping to use more in the future. So, um, yeah. So we're beginning, but, you know, we're not fully where we would like to be with prescribed burning yet. Yeah. But there's challenges with putting that fire, particularly in this landscape. Is that kind of some of the reasons why that it's hard to implement large-scale burns? Yeah, I think largely, you know, this is a fire-prone landscape with jack pine. There have been very large wildfires back to 1977, I think it was, Jen, with the airport fire and the Brockway fire, I believe, you know, that burned a lot of acres. So, you know, there is some history related to that and some hesitation to bring prescribed fire to the landscape. But that thinking is changing in more modern times here. Um, And now the prescribed fire program is now led by the forestry program, DNR's forestry program. And there's a lot of people in the area that are excited about utilizing fire. So, and I think Jen and I have some excitement about that too, that great, you know, now we can get a little bit more fire on the ground, you know, not only for site prep for planting jack pine or stimulating seed drop from jack pine to just stimulating the prairie vegetation in some of these sites. So thinking about maybe like how you would use that natural disturbance process as a part of your management, what would fire have looked like on a landscape like this? So would it have been, so when I think about jack pine and thinking about, Greg, you know a lot more about jack pine than I do. But it, what, I, what I think about what I learned in school is that, you know, you had these large stand replacing fires and you had seed coming down in these sites. And that doesn't feel right in this area, but what would fire, how would it have actually worked in this area? I think, you know, there would probably would have been a lot more low intensity ground fires historically and more frequently than those stand replacing fires. So those would have occurred quite often. And then every 10, 20, 30 years, depending on where you are on the landscape, you would have a stand replacing fire, which was the case back in 1977. That was a complete stand replacing fire. So when you go down, you look at the jack pine down there, it's all origin of 1978, essentially. But yeah, Yeah. I think it would have been a lot more widespread and just lower intensity. And so not necessarily replacing and killing the trees, but keeping the shrubs, you know, the oak brush, the hazelnut, and those things at bay largely. And would that have led to kind of, you mentioned this variability in terms of the canopy. So you had some places where you had dense jack pine, others that was more prairie vegetation and then different gradients in between, just that variability in fire. Yeah, I think so. A lot of heterogeneity on the landscape. You know, there's uh, small rivers, larger rivers in this area. Those there's you know richer sites along those rivers that would have stopped fire, so it would have been mm-hmm. you know kind of all mixed up and jumbled. So yeah, you would have had a lot of variability, yeah. I believe. I think we're going to make a drinking game out of any guest that says heterogeneity, and somehow we have to use that. <laughs> Our guests can use that as they see fit. I think it'll be good. Okay, does that mean I have to drink that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yet. Not yet. So, so, okay, so, so you guys, we, we don't use fire that much yet, right? But we, but we know the ecological importance of this. So what do we do in, instead of fire? What are we doing to, to mimic or replace it? And we're standing in an area, just so people know right now, that I can see for at least a half a mile. So obviously, <laughs> some type of management is going on here. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, so is that, are you trying to mimic maybe some of those conditions that, that fire would have put onto the landscape, but 
obviously in a little different way. Sure. So, of course, uh, a big reason why we have state forests is to harvest timber, right? Um, and here we have, uh, to our north, we have a couple of clear cuts. We've got a earlier one that we've already trenched and planted following the harvest. And then we've got another one off to the west that we just cut last summer. We're waiting on them to get the biomass off and then we'll plant up the other side. But we do a lot of timber harvesting here to kind of mimic like, you know, here we had a stand, we clear cut it. And if we can actually get the biomass off as well, then we can go ahead and have a, a clean start. And in this case right here, you planted this back to jack pine. Are you using both artificial and natural regeneration techniques out here in this jack pine area? Yeah, so we're really finding that it's quite difficult to do like natural regeneration on some of these really dry sites that we have, largely because of this uh, shrub layer that we have as competition. This woody competition is pretty fierce. We tried on this first site here, if you guys can remember back when, uh, anybody who's been through our one of our famous jack pine tours that we do here most falls, um, we did pre-sale scarification in here with our DNR dozers. We had mm-hmm. actually pretty darn good jack pine region after that, mm-hmm. but all the shrubs came back, all the hazel brush, all the scrub oak, and then back in here, the deer just bedded down in all that fabulous habitat and ate our trees to nothing. So we're really struggling with kind of a one-two punch of if you don't have, you know, if you don't have a big enough fire or other like disturbance, like that's scarification is uh, a little tricky to do here because guys are, we're using our DNR guys. They're used to doing a clean, nice job, not making a mess, right? Now here I'm telling them do the opposite. I need a huge mess. I really need you to rip this site up. I need to clear out all of these roots, really make a big mess. And they tend to be a little light on the ground here. So yeah. we've we've tried for, I don't know, I think since 2015, Greg. That's mm-hmm. maybe when we started yeah. working on the Jack Pine chapter. So people that maybe aren't familiar with uh, some of the scarification technique that we've used here, that's a, a straight blade on a small dozer. Yeah. And, and so you're basically telling uh, the dozer operators to... Um, to kind of scarify off that top duff layer, even though it's pretty thin, but expose mineral soil and just pretty much expose as much of that as they can in the understory of an existing jack pine stand. Right. Yeah. So it's other, I know some other places that have more serotonous cones than us are having a little better luck with this technique, Mm -hmm. but we've been trying to do the pre-sale scarification and then have our seed come down. We won't do ours immediately before the harvest, like guys can get away with on a purely serotonous cone site, but we're trying to do it and have like a year or two maybe for the seed to drop. We are talking about our dry site spots too, so even though it can be still tricky to get around in there with a dozer, these are sites that are like 80 to 90 square feet. We're not talking about, you know, a super densely packed stand. So they can maneuver around. Yeah, they yeah. can they can get around. What we're finding, we're having better luck with doing a kind of two years of scarification because some of these sites are so brushy that they can't mm. even really see what they're doing when they're in there. So they have to take one year, kind of like scrape off all of that surface, like vegetation. And then we lay, wait for it to re-sprout again. And then we go back in again and, and chase after it a second time. And then they actually can see 
they're not so angry with like poor conditions that they have to work and they don't they don't love me um to give them this work to do but that has worked a little bit better mm-hmm. but it's kind of still one of those things that we're working on the recipe trying to figure yeah. it out i think that's really interesting in other areas where it's a little the cones are a little more serotonous they closed then you can have that harvest right and put those cones down on that scarified soil they heat up pop open and you get that seed dispersal Whereas you, and both you and I have noted this before, is you have a lot more kind of non-serotonous or for whatever reason, the cones are popping on the trees. Right. And so you're losing that seed source or the window where that seed drop is very small. So unless that's timed with when that scarification occurs. And that's that, that's probably a, a, a window into the ecology of the site too, right? That disturbance, like you mentioned, those low intensity surface fires wouldn't have had sufficient heat to open serotonous cones. So it probably favored more non-serotonous trees over time. Yeah, that seems to make sense. I think yeah. there's a paper from Northwest Wisconsin that they showed some of that difference in serotony based on some of the fire regime historically that they would have seen in that area. Would, would that be would that be a play a role in maybe a, the difference between uh, pine barrens and say a pine forest? It was something like that. Potentially, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would like to say related to this particular site that Jennifer was talking about. Now, this is a site that largely had so much oak brush and hazelnut. It really didn't have a lot of the really good understory vegetation we're targeting. However, it's right adjacent to a site that does have that. So when we look at the whole picture is we have good barrens to the south with high quality understory vegetation. Jack pine's already been established, as you can see. You know, I don't know if those are you know, 20 year old trees or something like that there. So, you know, this open landscape created from the timber harvest clear cut and the work that has been done to get the jack pine established over here is just gonna add to the open landscape for birds and things like that, that like more of an open landscape. And overall just, you know, keep jack pine on the landscape and complement the site right across the road where we have our high quality stuff. Plus, I do believe when you do the type of work, I mean, you can see big blue stem out there. You can see a lot of native thistle out there that this stuff moves into those disturbed areas quite nicely, too. Mm. And along the roadside right away, we have a lot of high quality barrens. So that'll move in and stuff like that. So, you know, when you when you look at the juxtaposition, it's it's a Mm. win win. Arm, when when uh, we do those scarification projects, do you look for um, maybe some existing high quality vegetation and try to protect that from the scarification? So, well, we try to. I mean, that's kind of where we really need to work together. So, on a site further to the east, there was some nice high quality barrens vegetation. You know, that a solid sod of vegetation, essentially, just like this. But, and the goal was we did want to regenerate jack pine in there. So what we talked about and we went in there, even with the dozer operator, if I remember right, is, you know, we largely focused on bulldozing up and just getting the shrubs out of there. So we, they didn't do scarification in the open area. So this was this hybrid version of trying to blend both yeah. of our goals and objectives of trying to maintain the good veg, but let's try to get some regen going at the same time. So in kind of a way, it, it, you're kind of getting to that big picture too of like looking around, if you said, is this a restoration? You'd say yes, but you could also say that this is production in some ways too. Yeah. So there's, 
you guys have kind of blended that here, right? So with this kind of management, you're maybe on that border or, or, or not riding that difference between restoration and just maybe normal management. We're, we're really close to getting a system down. I mean, we've been working at this type of stuff for 13 years. Um, it is trying to find that balance. So it's now moving in the direction of trying to identify the highest quality sites with Barron's vegetation versus, say, a site that's just a Penn Sedge dominated understory where let's focus more on the production end and try to get dense jack pine, say, in the site that has the lower quality veg of just Penn Sedge. But when we've got the great prairie vegetation, well, then maybe we can accept a lower density of jack mm-hmm. pine and that sort of thing. And, you know, these sites aren't productive from a timber standpoint. I mean, these are sugar sand sites. So I think that's where the win-win really comes in. Like, yeah, we can blend these two things together. We can meet the goals and objectives of the master plan in both of our programs. So is that a little bit of that rolling barrens concept where you've identified some of these core areas of high quality and then maybe on the periphery you really are just trying to keep the jack pine and maybe as you said get some of that vegetation to move into those sites i would say it's we discussed this a little bit yesterday i will admit but yeah it's kind of rolling barons ish so this is an example (laughs) of this might be the core you know it's not to the same level of northwest wisconsin for folks familiar with that where there's much bigger opportunities but you hit it right on greg this is our core we're working on a more intensive timber harvesting and regenerating efforts around the core essentially and just maybe, keep shifting and maybe for our listeners who don't work in these systems or aren't familiar what is a rolling barons a rolling barrens is largely in my mind of having a core area of perhaps your highest quality barrens vegetation surrounded by lower quality sites of varying quality though where you know you might do clear cuts in some and try to you know manage for the vegetation in some of those you know that have a little better quality again maybe plant and sometimes you just don't get the success of regeneration but it's accepted in some of those situations where then you might have a much brushy area and you're just moving across the landscape You know, in a way, in many cases, and even here, trying to get, you know, a a better distribution of age classes and stuff like that as you work around that core type. And I know you mentioned like the Northwest Sands in Wisconsin, where they're working with larger acreages. They're also looking for that big open view shed for species like sharptail, grouse, um, and that kind of those production areas around that kind of make that larger open expanse. Yep. Exactly. How it, in that regard, how do how does retention play into something like that? So, would you see uh, like aggregated or dispersed retention and something like that, or is that a natural part of of barren systems? I think it's more of a natural part, depending on the intensity of fire. Yeah. You know that you know you're not always going to have the same density, and it's going to depend on the soil type and what you have, too. You know, and then rainfall and how many droughts you get in there and that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And Jennifer, when you use it, do you do you retain patches when you keep trees behind or are you are you okay with leaving trees just like scattered throughout a site? Do you see, I've seen on some sites like this where maybe wind throw comes into play at times. Yeah, we've tried, a, you know, a variety of that and we've kind of done both. We've done patches and we've done um, individual trees. I mean, personally, I kind of like the look of the patches a little bit more. It's a little more structure and a 
island, if you will, of what was there before. I know I've been to some classes before where you talk about how do you mimic natural um, systems versus, you know, the foresters look of like having your one tree every mm-hmm. exactly 30 feet apart <laughs> yeah. or whatever that yeah. kind of people dream about, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, then you have that little reservoir there of whatever was there, right? So you've mm-hmm. got a reservoir of your old stand to help feed back into your current stand. So. Sort of the refugia, the, you know, that refugia, lifeboats, critters and species, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Right. Yeah, and it kind of maybe mimics if you had uh, a large-scale fire, you might have ended up with less disturbed patches, like kind of a lake shadow or something effect. Um, so it kind of fits with, as you said, some of that mimicking natural disturbance. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's that's about, as you know, some of these jackpine clear cuts we're planning to you know, trench and spray afterward, but especially if we have something interesting like uh, natural red pine pockets in there or, you know, something along those lines, it's it's always kind of interesting to mm-hmm. leave some of that stuff behind just to, yeah. to kind of leave that interesting Almost thing, a uh, heterogeneity. Oh. <laughs> leaving some heterogeneity. That's for our listeners playing at home, yeah. so that we say get another drink <laughs> in this episode. Finally, okay, finally. it's just Mountain Dew. Uh, but. Yeah. Uh, and so on this side here, Jennifer, as you said, Sometimes the scarification hasn't always panned out in terms of successful regeneration. And then here you've gone artificial um, to maintain that jack pine component within the stand. Right. So it takes, all all we've lost is a little bit of time, right? So Mm -hmm. we're going to give it a try. We're going to try to do natural regeneration. If it didn't work out for us, like it didn't in this case, well, we learned something. And then we just, you know, go back to the known way of getting some jack pine back on the site which we had to do some herbicide in here as well to kind of knock all this brush down so that the deer wouldn't come in here so so maybe time for the hard questions right so so on all of the you remember watch tv and they have the what's commercials the hard questions <laughs> well this is <laughs> setting up the hard question nervous yeah <laughs> so greg <laughs> no it's for these guys but basically so climate change right so how do you so now you have restoration you have this track record you have something you can look at for how these systems work how do you how on a system like this how do you use climate change to inform your management well i guess i'll jump in with that um you know the barren's vegetation the understory vegetation and and the jack pine itself i mean the understory vegetation should do well if the climate warms and we become drier i know jack pine projections aren't looking as good as the understory vegetation but i guess in my mind i think of maintaining that jack pine here as long as we can largely for resiliency as we work through climate change and we start seeing the impacts of climate change coming on so it really is maintaining some of what we have for resiliency so as plants and animals need to shift into the future we we have something that can shift if there's an opportunity for it to shift yeah and jack pine is still such a short you know rotation species if we're still talking about something that lives like 50 60 years on these dry sites i i don't see a reason why we would give up at this point you know we would definitely want to keep trying to put the jack pine out on the landscape it's such a diminishing resource you know across our state across our region we're one of the few you know entities that is bothering to keep 
working on this because it's not simple and it's not, you know, the greatest economic return. So, And that was part of the whole idea of coming up with the Jack Pine Habitat area and the master plan, too, is recognizing that I think at the beginning of the master plan, Jack Pine might have actually been more Jack Pine on the property than White Pine, but that flipped. So, you know, it was recognized we're losing Jack Pine on the forest, you know, and across the state. And what can we do to hang on to some component of that jack pine before that's, you know, white pine just keeps taking over and and shrubs and brush move in and we lose the jack pine opportunities. Yeah. So keep on keeping on, at least for now. Yeah. And I'm not so sure. We'd have to take a look to find out if jack pine is. I think some of the Climate Change Atlas does some work on that. Maybe we can look on into that for the future and, and take a look at it. But I'm not sure that it's projected to be as big a loser as people might have thought in the past. But and people we might not out. know that this is a really cold spot in the state this far south, so perhaps that will help it, too. You know, it's not, you know, you just go a couple counties to the west and it's a lot warmer. I mean, it's much cooler lows here and stuff like that, so perhaps that'll help. I thought you just meant it's just cool. Well, here. it is very cool, too. <laughs> yes. No, this is an amazing place to work in. Yeah, I know Black River Falls is known as the happening place, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Hey, the Carner Blue Butterfly yeah, Festival. Yeah, the Butterfly right. Festival. See, even festival recognizing yeah, bears for that. and some of the rare species that are found on them, so... I was I was thinking about both of you have mentioned this issue with uh, hazel and some of the brush competition, and that's not necessarily good for some of the rare plants, and it's not necessarily good for trying to regenerate. Is that something that maybe traditionally or historically might have been more controlled by fire, and could fire be used to control that? And I'm particularly I'm thinking about growing season burns or like maybe moving that burn window into those growing seasons to get to that specific issue. Jennifer and I have talked about that and we have a site uh, to the south of here where that's one thing we've been wanting to try was an August burn. Now we have a lot of rare species issues that get in the way of management for rare species habitat. So we looked at an opportunity there. We could burn beginning in August. So we've tried to pull that off the last couple years, but we've had wet falls and stuff like that. This year, it doesn't look like there's a lot of fuel in the site, but yeah. And I've heard that, you know, you know, thinking of some of the work that some of your colleagues have done on, you know, controlling hazelnut and stuff like that and oak control, you know, Jed and stuff, the folks that are doing the the fire research that we think we can get better control if we would attempt to do that. Again, there's always those winners and losers. So we have to stay within our sideboards of protecting the rare species while trying to manage the habitat. the habitat itself. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's always that balance. But I was just thinking maybe you have the acreage here to work with that yeah. you might be able to that gives uh, us more that flexibility. Off. Yeah. That gives us the flexibility, I think, you know, because we have so much to work with, essentially, that, and, that yeah. Yeah, I don't know if, if you want to go down this path per se, but we, right now, we're in an area that our current master plan says Jack Pine Habitat Management Area. Our proposed changes, we're on going through another master plan process, right, Armand? Yes. A lot more. Fun, fun. A lot more. Um, on the same page this time around. Uh, we're proposing to make a big state natural area here for barons. You know, it's they'll they'll be named 
the barons? What, what are I think their names? it was the Bach and Butterfly Barons. <laughs> yeah, that's what he wishes. <laughs> After the previous property uh, yeah, manager. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, just to kind of like ID yeah. that, you know, um, identify the fact that we do have a really good opportunity here to manage for barons, especially this far south. There are not very many other op- opportunities on. It's a, like we say, ours, ours is a lot smaller than maybe in the northwest, but for this far south, this is one of the largest places that you could do something like that. Mm-hmm. Several thousand acres, which is pretty substantial if you go south along the lower Wisconsin, you know, f- a few small little opportunities, right. but it really is. And, and largely, like we've discussed during the process, the language in the plan really isn't going to change. We talked about identifying, you know, high quality barren sites to focus on barrens management within the entire jack pine habitat area. So now we're actually moving towards implementing the previous master plan, but it just has a state natural area layer over it, recognizing it's it's this really unique rare habitat in addition to jack pine. As you said, you're going to still need the kind of the forest production disturbance in order to maintain what you're actually after. So probably the treatments will stay fairly similar. And we do a lot of um, trying to work together, like the site to the south of us was, as we did the clear cut, I included the really cruddy white pine that was mixed in to this site, got the loggers to cut that out for us. So we got like a little bit of money off of it. Armin got all that work done for free. And because the white pine here is such a weed for us in these barren sites, we really hate them seeding in. <laughs> Brad's shaking his head. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we were, you know, we, we're trying to do it in the most economically, you know, feasible manner. If, if we can spend less money, we can do more, yep. more management. And if we can get management that actually even pays for itself, I mean, that's the best case scenario. And that's what we largely try to do. I mean, I review a lot of the timber sales here and I might say, hey, Jen, you got a sale taking place over here. We've got a bunch of old white pine and it's seeding into these barrens and this is a horrible site to grow white pine, right? Can you can you pull the trigger and get that cut? Oh, I don't know if they're going to want to go over there, but we'll see if somebody buys the sale and stuff like that. Or, hey, take out an extra roll of red pine on the end of the plantation, that sort of thing. Uh, We've each worked on grants that have worked for each other's programs as well. Um, We've had turkey stamp dollars where we've done fecon work and got most of the shrubs and crappy brush out of there. And that allowed better movement to get equipment in to actually cut the jack pine and get it site prepped ahead of time while still maintaining the high quality vegetation in there. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, mitigation, fire mitigation grants, which really dovetail well. We want to get those ladder fuels cut out. We want to get the woods thinned down and not have these jack pines. So my crew comes in and does some of the work and then we put in a great big fire break. So, I mean, a lot of this work that we're doing is really dovetailing nicely to to help each other's goals and objectives. And, and overall, looking at the goal of an objective of the master plan itself, because we're always going back to what is the plan telling us to do? Well, I think what you said, Jennifer, in the beginning, that it's really interesting for foresters and ecologists to work together on these sites because that's where kind of a lot of creativity comes together and not everybody has all the answers. So you're just basically trying to put your heads together and do some trial and error. So I think that's really, really neat. And uh, also 
because Jack Pine is the coolest tree, I think I really appreciate you trying to wait, maintain. Wait, wait, wait. First, white pine is a weed. Then Jack Pine is the coolest tree. This is this is proof we're in the bizarro world right now. <laughs> Come on, Brad. It is. You have to admit, it is a very yeah. unique tree. Whatever, so, Greg. It's, yeah, it's, so. yeah, you're right. It is unique. Uh, <laughs> it is unique. That's as far as you'll go. Yeah. So I really appreciate your work out here um and i'm sure brad does well too. I, I, actually uh, we we need to celebrate anytime you get to see creative and adaptive silviculture the way you guys employ it this really needs to be celebrated and and shown to lots of people because this is a real heterogeneity integration teamwork that's right you know it comes down to none of us know it all right so right. i mean even talking about this yesterday with jennifer we just you know you feed off of each other and you start brainstorming new ideas that none of us thought of before and hopefully you find out or learn some good ideas or come up with some good plans and execute and hope that worked out and you know a win-win on the sand a win-win on the sand absolutely well, i want to thank both of you for meeting yep. us out here yep. heterogeneity and then <laughs> um uh yeah no thank you this very much good stuff thank you thank you guys you guys are welcome yeah, yeah. great That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you send us, and share it with our listeners. And Jennifer, as Brad said, we talk about tips. Got any tips out there for the foresters? Sure. If you guys uh, are out working in an area and you're a little nervous that you're not going to maybe follow the standards the way that you need to to get your regional ecologists on board invite them out to mark with you by the time that you're done marking it's as much their fault as yours right they can't blame anybody at that point (laughs) i think that's really good advice actually in a lot of different situations invite your boss out you know invite whoever that's right increase the circle of blame (laughs) (laughs) circle of success Hey, Brad, a forester and a restoration ecologist walk into a bar, and one of them says, we'd like a couple of beers, please. And the bartender says, okay, but don't start anything. (laughs) Now, how long did it take you to come up with that one? Not long enough. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And... Thanks, everyone. As always, we'd like to thank our team, Haley Frader, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMaid, our IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, and, of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. See you, everyone. <laughs>